You're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, it's America's talk radio show about opera. It's Opera Box Score. I'm Weston Williams, joined this week by Oliver Camacho, Matt Cummings, and Ashley Hardgrave. All right, in this episode, it's a double header on Octavian when we go inside the huddle with Samantha Hanke, star of the Mets' recent production of Der Rosen Cavalier, and we are also joined by the Octavian of her generation, Susan Graham. Not sure why she agreed to talk to you, Oliver. Plus, you'll get color commentary from our own Matt Cummings about why it's one of the best mezzo roles in opera land. And in the two-minute drill, it's the Opera Legal Roundup. David Daniels takes a plea deal and the Met is getting sued. The plaintiff will shock you. Or not. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast on Spotify. Click follow on Apple Podcasts. Hit the plus sign. Send us a voice email or email us your hot takes at operaboxscore at gmail.com. You'll get an OBS beer coaster and an OBS lapel pin just for sharing your own hot take. We're so generous here at Opera Box Score, And there's none of us more generous than the one and only Oliver Camacho. You know who's generous are the people at Santa Fe Opera. Uh, True. <laughs> I, it's sort of my early good call, but, um, you know, I've, this is my first year being on the ground when COVID doesn't seem to be a factor. And the media room was open and I was able to have access to most artists who were on campus with some exceptions. And, uh, yeah, it just was such a great experience this year. And I, I cannot wait to get back next year. Um, and we'll hear some of the generosity from Santa Fe Opera with the double header of interviews we got for this episode. Matt Cummings, how generous are you feeling today? I mean, less generous than Oliver, who did really share an awful lot of content from the Santa Fe artists with this <laughs> in addition to several other places where you yeah. can find it. All right, Ashley, give us a little bit of generosity. Make us like uh, give, give us something that's just uh, we can just like take in and absorb and feel grateful for. Well, I cannot take credit for this. Uh, I am but a guest in this arena, but I just want to give you two words. Riverboat talk. If you know, you know. If not, you need to look it up. I love some poetic justice, and now everybody knows who invented the folding chair. I am a fan. Mm. Mm. Yes, it's a very educational experience. Let's, uh, let's talk some opera. Huddle up. Let's go inside the huddle. Thank you. 
That was Brigitte Fassbender and Lucia Pop singing the presentation of The Rose from Bayerische Staatsoper with Carlos Kleiber conducting. What a pair. While I was in Santa Fe, I had the chance to interview a number of artists, but uh, two of them have something in common, more than one thing in common. Uh, they were both appearing in the new production of Peleas et Melisande, uh, the Melisande of Samantha Hanke and the Jean Vieve flex casting of uh, Susan Graham. Who? And so, yeah, <laughs> I know, right? Uh, so I interviewed Susan Graham for my other job, which actually pays me. Uh, and <gasps> she agreed to stick Rude. around for a, <laughs> she agreed to stick around for a couple of minutes to uh, answer my questions about the role of singing Octavian, which was one of the subjects that I spoke about with, uh, with Samantha Henke. So we're going to hear two interviews today uh, that have to do with Octavian. But before we do, um, Matt, for those people who are not as familiar with Der Rosenkavalier as uh, the esteemed uh, OBS panel, uh, can you help the audience uh, get up to speed with uh, this pinnacle role of 19th century, 20th century? It's the 20th century, right? It is oh, the yeah, early yeah, 20th yeah. century. Yes. Uh, so Cavalier, if you're not familiar with it, it can seem extremely intimidating because it is very long. Uh, and it is kind of like chatty whipped cream for three and a half hours. <laughs> Not to be confused with Strauss's uh, ballet literally called whipped cream. He had a type. What, what can yeah. I say? <laughs> <laughs> and like 45 minutes to an hour of that music is some of the most glorious music ever written. And then another hour or so is very good. And then um, there is also more music. <laughs> <laughs> There's <Yes>. act three. <laughs> that is so accurate. Oh, my yeah. God. And it so it's based on this old Moliere comedy, which I bring up because I think it's very important to like the spirit of Rosencavalier in that it's extremely class conscious and it mm. uses elements of like this, this farcical comedy where characters are very clever and nimble and there's a lot of scheming and a lot of plotting and a lot of disguises. Um, but it is much more individual than just like very formalized comedy. Um, and it's ex also extremely German. Yeah. This opera is very, very much about text and subtext and cultural commentary. Um, and some of that is extremely literal. And you can pick up on it from the minute. I mean, the boorish noble from the country's last name is literally Ox. And it means the same thing in German as it does in English. <laughs> very subtle. Um but it does run deeper than that, and it requires like a lot of context for it to make sense. That this is about the struggle for the aristocracy versus the bourgeoisie. There, like, there's a lot of politics involved, um, but there's also a lot of real sentimentality and reflectiveness to the work. And, and, like, and it was written a couple years before World War One started, but it's almost like it knew that the era that it was depicting. Um, and the kind of the golden age of middle Europe would soon be shattered. It's um, like Downton Abbey. Yeah. Except that it was <laughs> written before it happened. Yeah. Yes. That reflectiveness is like mostly shown through the Marshallin, who's kind of the heart and soul of, of the opera as like a, in terms about wistfulness and aging and looking at oneself in the mirror as they turn 32 and are far too old. <laughs> I say at age 32 um <laughs> relatable content. and octavian on the other hand is like so it the opera opens with octavian in bed with the marshal in um and he is all vigor and he's all hot-headedness um and also played by a lady yeah, he's and he's ready for round two or round three a or round scandalo. four but like, yeah it's like yeah kind, kind of a ken honestly 
(laughs) (laughs) I should have worn my I am Knuff shirt to this recording. (laughs) Of course you have that. (laughs) This piece, like, when you're looking at musical history is also really interesting because this was the first thing that Strauss wrote after Elektra and Zalame, the first opera that he wrote. Um, And it's this huge pivot toward the neo-romantic style that would really become um, his signature style. And it's definitely not lacking in complexity, uh, but it is a little bit more, it's a lot more conventional in form and tonality than like Elektra or Zalame. And this is another opera with his partnership with Hoffmannsthal, who was extremely specific in his use of the German language. He uses a lot of dialects to draw the characters cleanly and like reflect the time period. But it also contains his like typical attention to detail in the characters and having a lot of motivated drama as well as just like pretty sounding poetry. At the top of the show, um, you Weston said that uh, this uh, this role of Octavian is uh, best mezzo rolled in opera land. So before we hear Samantha Hanke, who uh, famously took over the role uh, for Isabel Leonard, who withdrew from the uh, most recent production, what in, in in short, what makes it one of the best roles? So there's a lot to do. First of all, the Octavian is the only character of the three main ladies who's on stage for all three acts and has a lot of singing to do. Mm. Um, that, that singing is reflected in like four big set pieces. There's the opening monologue, Vidu Varst. There's the big presentation of the Rose duet in the middle of act two. And then the final trio and duet with Sophie at the end of act three. But Octavian is on stage for like a really big chunk of the hours that span those four set pieces and has plenty of extended bits uh whether those that is dressing up as a chambermaid to discuss to trick the country cousin and doing like a whole scene in drag in like a victor victoria drag where it's a woman who's playing a man who's dressed up as a woman and fooling everyone kind of um (laughs) there's a couple big crowd scenes there are some like really gorgeous extended lyrical moments that come out of thin air almost when he and the marshal are talking near the end of act one uh there's the long long did i say long prank scene (laughs) that takes up the first three quarters of act three that like octavian does not get a break and has to really um give it his slash her his her all um because the music go like there's so much whiplash as it goes from this like very chatty text driven music to these arching lines and it alternates very very quickly between them even in the big musical moments you sing like one glorious phrase and then you're back to being counter melody in the in the counterpoint in that trio and this is a role that like Basically, any high lyric mezzo uh, worth her salt has made a meat of. I mean, Crystal Ludwig is exquisite. Anso Vivanoder, Ivan Minton, Risa Stevens, Tatiana Troyadus, one of my favorites, Frederica von Stade. There was a big to-do that you may remember from a couple of years ago when Tara Erat um, sang this role Mm -hmm. and uh, got some very sexist reviews written about her. and there are also some some hat trickers and some aspiring hat trickers who have sung <laughs> all three of the the Rosen Cavalier ladies. Elizabeth Söderström and Lisa Della Casa sang all three of the roles, and Krista Ludwig sang both Octavian and Marshallin. And you might and be saying Eleanor Staber sang Sophie and Marshallin. Yes, I knew there was mm-hmm. one. I forgot. And you might be saying, "Hang on, you said that this was a mezzo role," and I <laughs> I think that truly it should be. Like, because it, they, it, it's the lowest voice of the three. 
It makes the drag element completely seamless when there is a timbral difference. The timbres of the, 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 there's so much like tight counterpoint and harmony that these, vo- the voices really have to agree in this opera, but you also have to be able to hear them in the range. Yeah. And the, the role was premiered by a dramatic soprano, but, and there's a long tradition of like successful soprano Octavians on record. But I think that that has to do a lot with the type of like Austro-German singer that I like to call the Middle Europäische Sopran. <laughs> um, and that is like the thread that connects your Elizabeth Schwarzkopf's to your Lisa de la Casa's to your Ermgard Seyfried's to Zena Juranots, all of whom sang uh, Octavian. And then some other singers who didn't, like Gundula Janowitz, or for some more modern examples, like an Anschwanevilms or Anya Harteros. Mm. And because their voices tend to sit, like, a little bit lower than, um, the Italian lyric sopranos, and they often sing so much leader, there's a lot of focus on text in this role that they're, a- that they're really able to deliver. But the fact of the matter is, it's such a dense role, it's such a dense orchestration, it's such dense vocal writing, that if you don't really have the heft at the bottom of the staff, you're going to get buried a couple places in this opera. You're so, um, yeah. while you have to be a mezzo who is very, very comfortable singing delicate high notes, we have a lot of those. And so there's really no reason to cast it with a soprano these days. So we now turn to our first interview, uh, Samantha Hankey, who uh, at the time I recorded this at Santa Fe Opera was starring in Pelias and Melisande. Uh, but as you might remember from uh, last season at the Met, uh, she replaced Isabel Leonard in the production starring Lisa Davidson and Aaron Morley and Gunther Groisbach, uh, which was also an HD presentation. Uh, I first heard Samantha Hankey when she was singing Hensel uh, at Lyric Opera of Chicago. And uh, we begin talking about that Hansel production, but I also uh, asked her a question about uh, domestic life uh, when one is at Santa Fe. You have a house while you're here, right? Yeah, I'm in a townhouse and it's very comfortable. Yeah. Yeah. And but you bring an espresso machine. I travel everywhere with my Nespresso. I have a European Nespresso machine and an American one. Uh, the European one, is it like work? Well, with... it's the same. It's just for the different electrical. Oh, conversion. I see what you're saying. Okay, I lived fair. in Germany for two years, so okay. I had one. I just 
thought, okay, I'll take it home back to the States with me. And then when I know I'm traveling to Europe, I throw that in the suitcase. Okay. But it, but you don't take both of them with you everywhere. No, generally not. <laughs> in case you encounter like a European outlet. No. <laughs> I mean, we don't even use those regular like um, Apple iPhone blocks anymore. We just use those travel converters yeah. that have the USB Yeah, things. all the different things. In yeah. It, yeah. Hmm. So I just heard your Melisande um, the other day and it was baller. Uh, it was so good. Thank you. You sound amazing. And... Your approach to Melisande, at least in the first act, uh, is very strong. Like, you know, I feel like you are uh, self-possessed and you understand who you are and you're not like, oh, don't touch me. You're like, no, don't touch me. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. Um, I found that actually going into the first scene was the most helpful after we had rehearsed scene four four, which is where it's... You get a hair. The hair yeah. is ripped from left to right and... Yeah. Um, one day we had checked in on that and then we started at the top of the show and I started with this entire other mindset of escaping a really traumatic... You recognize this guy. Yeah. You know who he is. Yeah, like he might have been what my bluebeard was that I just escaped from. Hmm. So, um, yeah, no, she's been through a lot. And you're talking about scene uh, Act 4, Scene 4, which is uh, when Golo, you know, finally, you know, unleashes violence on you. Mm-hmm. How is it working on that? I mean, like when I watched that, I was like horrified. And yes. I, I've met Zachary before and I know him to be a very... He's such a sweetheart. Yeah. Yeah. Do you guys have to like talk about it afterwards or hug each other? Or something oh, like yeah. That? Yeah. Well, the rehearsal process, we have a fight call before every show and we kind of go through it jokingly. Like we mm -hmm. laugh through it. We have a good time. Um, and then during the show, it's really intense. I always kind of crawl and then walk off stage and I like can't see out of my contacts mm. they're so foggy it's like you know I have that really intense breathing from being in a fight and crying and I just have to like go and give someone a hug I like just need to know that it's okay and then it, I, I need to bring a, a certain amount of that scene into um into the scene that I have with yeah. um but she doesn't look surprised when it's happening. It's like you knew this was going to happen. Well, we see it. We see a foreshadowing and a hint oh. of it when he notices that I've lost the ring. Mm -hmm. We start seeing that kind of aggressive nature from him, um, and unfortunately, he demonstrates it with all the characters. Yeah. So it's not new. <clears throat> and Arkell is just there, like, Ugh, I've lost control. <laughs> like I can't. I, yeah. I can't. I can't even stop this from happening. You know. Yeah. I mean, luckily he can't see much. So. Okay. <laughs> So I have to be extra loud with my screams and my breathing. <laughs> but he stops it, yeah. you know? Well, this is the, uh, I, I don't know if it's the end of a season, the beginning of a season. It's so weird we're in August now. It is now. weird. Yeah. yeah. But I feel like this has been your year. Um, you were in Chicago doing Hansel um, mm -hmm. with Heidi Stober. And uh, it's a Richard Jones production. Is it, it is, yeah. yes. And... Um, you know, you are, you can do the boy thing so well. And that is a very physical production. Uh, it's like, I don't know how many calories you burn a day in that show. A lot. <laughs> yeah. But you, you can play this, you know, boy um, and have this, you know, um, it's not masculine, but it's like childish uh, way of, of being on stage. And even it, it, it changes the color of your sound, like you're a little bit more uh, ingenue, a little bit more bright, you know? Mm. And then, like, what was it, a month later, turn on the radio and you're singing Octavian, uh, 
it was Isabel Leonard who was announced as in the cast for uh, that run of Rosenkavalier with Lisa Davidson. But um, I guess she had to back out of the production and it was you. And um, holy F. Yeah. <laughs> what, what, I mean, I know that you've been preparing. It's not like you came out of nowhere. But for us casual observers, it feels like all of a sudden you're just dropped into the world of opera and saying, this is the person to pay attention now, you know? Thank you. I mean, it was really a dream come true. I couldn't have asked for like a more perfect show to to kind of arrive in. in um... I actually was in Chicago. I was performing the last show of Hensel und Gretel, and that's when my agent said, can you call me during the intermission? So she's in the UK. I'm <laughs> like, all right, that's really late for her. So I give her a call and she says, it's all done. Uh, after Palm Beach, you're going straight to the Met and you're singing Octavian. And I just, I lost, I lost it. <laughs> I'm like fully dressed as Hensel, bawling my eyes out. And I can't, I'm not going to tell anyone until the contract signed because yeah. I was just over the moon. And I just thought, this can't be real. This is such a dream come true. Um, I was like hesitant to even book my my accommodation until the contract was signed. I was like, they might change their mind. They'll, they'll find someone else. But I was so glad that it was real and they did want me and it was amazing. I mean, that's, these are the stories that like, there's a lot more I know that that goes into these things and your preparation and all the things you've been doing, but it does feel like you were just born into this career now yeah. <laughs> as a fully fledged artist. And Octavian is, was really long. It's like one of yeah. the- Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's like the mezzo role, <laughs> at least in my mind, yeah. you know, that's the one that, that speaks the most to me. Had so. you sung it before? I did. I premiered it, um, a new production with Barry Kosky and Vladimir Drovsky at the Bayerische Staatsoper. Okay. That was in March of 2021. So we did, you know, five weeks of rehearsal and our one performance was this live web broadcast. And then we revived it the following summer of 2022 with the audience. And that was amazing. It was finally with a full orchestra and we had all let the role settle a bit. Yeah. It was with Marlis Pedersen, Katarina Konradi. We were all debuting these epic roles. So, And that's a, a, also at Bayreuth? Uh, no, this is in Munich. Bayreuther Stadt. So I've never been there. What is the size house difference between Munich and the Met? Um, at least a thousand seats. Okay. So you feel that from from your perspective on stage? Yes, I think so. I mean, it's different performing German repertoire for an American audience versus a German audience. Um, you, you could feel people reading the the super titles at the Met. Mm. Um, and so I would ask our, our revival director, Paula, is this funny enough? Do I need to make the beats clear? And she's like, oh, no, it's it's totally there. It's just the difference of the language barrier. Yeah, the timing. Yeah. yeah. Um, Singing with Lisa Dav- Davidson, uh, do you is that intimidating? Because like I haven't heard her live yet, but everybody oh talks about. Oh my god! <laughs> yeah, you have to. I mean, just she's coming to Chicago next year. So. What a musician! Of course, incredible size instrument, but the musicality that she brought to Marshallin, I think, was what was most impressive because she can really bring it down to a piano, a pianissimo, and it was the text and and the phrasing, the the delivery of everything. It was really fun working with her. Oh, <laughs> 
Talk to me about some of the of the character beats of Octavian. Um, you know, starting, you know, we you the curtain opens up on you, you know, in flagrante, basically, <laughs> you know, and you feel so passionately. Yeah, uh, and you sense the Marshallin's, uh melancholy uh, when you come back uh, in the first act, and you have that gorgeous um, mind shirt. Oh shirt, yeah, you know, which I think is the line of the opera. You know. Mm. Um, and so that is, you know, that is the first act. And then, then you meet Sophie. What is the journey like for you? And like, what are you trying to do vocally to draw that, that, that already yeah. is an arc of a character between act one and act two? For sure. I actually think of each act kind of as the, or their own opera mm-hmm. because they're so different and you can't necessarily bring the weight of what's happened in act one into act two. Otherwise, you don't have that kind of magic and spark for the presentation of the rose, which really needs to be focused, light, bright, um, kind of crystalline. Where act one is more schwung and and sweat and sensuality. Um, And then the third act is just a free-for-all. It's all of those acts in its own setting. So you have the craziness of Mariandel, which is all over the place vocally in the best way possible. (laughs) So fun. Um, But trying to make the ugliest sound that you can just to see like how far you can push Ox. You need the beauty for the very final duet with Sophie. And then you need the the sensuality for the trio. Hmm. Um, You said this is the role, this is like the the role for you it's a dream role do you feel like you can do this role for a long time do you feel like you're gonna live in this you know uh part of your career for a long time i sure hope so okay because i heard something very recently about another job assignment you have coming up Mm. um which suggests a uh even you know richer uh darker quality that Mm. might be asked of you you know Uh uh-huh yes (laughs) you know i think i think Nowadays, we think of Fach as... Um, Ooh, are you, you someone doesn't like Fach? I don't like Fach. Okay, good. No. Say like, it. Yeah, be, yeah. You know, when I showed up to the Met for our first music rehearsal of Octavian, there was a big um, portrait of Presentation of the Rose yeah. with... Um, who was it? Oh, my God. We're going to have to... No, it's okay. I can pause. Brain. Yeah. Uh, who was it? Chris- Maria Juritza. Maria okay. And if you don't know her, she sang everything. Carmen, Tosca, Octavian, um, Strauss wrote The Empress and Frauen Schatten for her. So when we're thinking about Fach, like, it used to be so much freer. Look at what, what Kala's saying or um, Giulietta Simonato. Like, these singers had such a wide range of repertoire. If, if you can think of someone that's singing rosina and azucena this is a much more flexible opinion of the voice than what we think of nowadays um so some of my idols are tatiana troianos jesse norman these are singers that sang what they were called to and instead of just exactly what fit into a a traditional fach box i'm so glad you said tatiana (laughs) troianos because i adore tatiana troianos one of my favorite voices of all time and now that you say it, I think, oh, yeah, she did sing Handel, didn't she? You know? Yeah. Uh, because Handel's also, Handel's in your repertoire. Mm, he is. It's not my favorite. It, it kind of falls into the, the Rossini. Um, it depends on the role when, with it, when it comes to Handel. Okay. Yeah. So you're happy in um, Octavian uh, and 
Mozart? Do you? What? I do love Mozart. Yeah. Okay. Um, so uh, can we talk about this assignment you have coming up next, or is it not public yeah. knowledge yet? Uh, Santuzza? Yeah. Yeah, it's okay, definitely announced. <laughs> <laughs> okay, great. So what company is that? You said, okay. It's a Lyric Opera of Kansas, Kansas City. City. Okay. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so that to me uh, is Verismo, and there are some very dramatic things you have to sing. They're oh, just, yeah. they're, you know, the, the duet and like the curse and stuff like that, you know. But For um, sure. Yeah, and th- those would to me call for you to be... Uh, more generous already than you already are. You're a very generous mm. artist on stage, but that's the type of role that like is asking you to be generous. I don't think that it's asking so much in, in the acting perspective because I already go there. It's it's going to require me to think actually more technically for the health of my voice mm-hmm. and in order to do it in the way that's not authentic, but the most respectful of the style. It's not a style that I've ever encountered before. So I keep asking everyone, what are your tips on Verismo? I, I, I want to do it justice. Yeah. Um, do you listen to anybody right now? I mean, Troyanos. Troyanos, of course. Yeah. Well, I was listening to Kalos. Yeah. And I was driving around in the car and I thought, oh my God, why did I say yes to this? I can't <laughs> sing that. <laughs> but um, then I started, sw- I started switching to um, all of the mezzos. So Troyanos. No, I haven't listened to hers. Oh yeah. She has a recording uh, with... A tenor that we don't talk about right now. So okay, yeah, yeah. but uh, um, but it's really great. I mean, she's very uh, fiery, you know. Yeah, and like she always sounds like her voice is going to explode at any minute. You know? Right. Yeah, that's definitely the the issue with the piece because it sits so high. It's like a a, a later version of um, I think if if componist, you know, transitioned into verismo and you just sang a few more A's. Yeah. <laughs> Componist is a role that you also. I feel like that's like a perfect. I love Componist. Yeah. yeah. And then you're done like after 30 minutes, like you know. Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good paycheck. <laughs> it's a good scream. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's the Italian version in my mind. That's how I'm approaching it, and so I'm taking some of the practice techniques from Componist and putting that into Santuzza. Hmm. Yeah. So before we wrap up, um, Melisande to me is uh, very, you know feminine role and you mm. your your portrayal actually in the very beginning is a, I, I thought it was like princess die like it was like yes. very very super chic you know um but you have this octavian you have hansel you have componist um did you have somebody specifically to, to coach you on what it's like to be a guy like you know you'd have this you you have masculine energy you yeah know? uh i think that it's like a for me it's like knowing that you have some between your legs and yeah. like the way you hold your shoulders and whatnot. And, and like as Hansel, you have this sort of like, uh, you know, you're not always two feet on the ground, you know, type of energy, you know. For sure. Uh, are you working with something of this stuff? Because to me, it's, it's so obvious that like you really inhabit like these characters. Thank you. No, I, I don't work with anyone right now. Um, but I do have this language for each character. I mean, you name any of them and I just immediately feel like I'm in a different body. You know, when I when I start thinking about their physicalities and their tics and even just their thought process, you know, Hensel is all over the place in my mind. You know, when you think of that that movie, when it's like squirrel, that's yeah. that's Hensel. Like he's all <laughs> over the place, and then he sounds a little bit in that way too. She's just more blunt, um, but they're all so unique, and I don't think it's I don't think it's necessarily about thinking I'm playing a boy or I'm playing a girl which was the beauty of working with Nisha Jones. She gave me this this freedom to say, 
you don't need to worry about your femininity. You know, you're a woman. It will, it will read. It's enough where I thought, oh, is this, is this enough for what the audience wants? Am I representing their image of being feminine on stage? It's just about being the character and acting and, and, and ten, intending the emotions as honestly and um, in line with who they are as possible. So you don't have an acting coach that's giving you ideas about physicality and like no. gestures because it really does come natural to you then. Like, well, I like, I really like it. I yeah. like acting. <laughs> and it's not something that was always comfortable or that I was um, raised with. You know, I was always raised with music, but acting came much later on in life. I haven't looked at your biography and I, I try not to as well. Cool. But what, um, you know, training you've had, what schools or what like finishing programs you might have been to. Yeah. Was, was there anyone that had a real strong uh, emphasis on char- building characters and the physicality of characters? Yeah, I didn't really start training in that way until I got to Juilliard for my undergrad and my master's. That's when we started having acting classes and doing monologues and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's interesting that like, you know, there's this American conservatory system where you don't even work on that stuff until you are whatever at, at a level, you know, but I feel like it's we are actors. We are even when we're singing art oh song. God. And like yeah. I just saw your recital the other day and you sang the Berg seven early songs, which are, uh, you know, poetically a little bit, they're lofty, you know, mm-hmm. uh, but you felt it felt very organic coming from you. Like, Thanks. Uh, and you also love to look into the audience, which is not something that you get from recitals all the time. You usually get to me like looking off into the half distance yeah. or up into the sky or to the floor, you know, but it was such an intimate space. And I, I saw so many beautiful, friendly faces in the audience. I couldn't not, you know, welcome everyone in. Yeah. that To me, that has to do with um, a comfort with oneself. Mm. And I feel like singers aren't always comfortable with themselves. They're, they're comfortable playing characters, you know, but, mm-hmm. it, but in art song, it's like, you've got to really uh, be okay with what you look like on stage, you know? Right. Well, even someone after the, the performance, the recital said, you know, I had seen you in, in Petty Awesome Mini Zones, but I wanted to come and see who you really are just in this recital where you're just presenting yourself. And for the longest time, that really scared me because I'm a very private person. I'm trying to open up more. Um, but recital does feel very exposed. Like when you watch someone on that stage, you think that this is who they are. And it's, it's finding what, what pieces of yourself you're comfortable opening up about. I do have like my test, uh, when I go to a recital, can I look at this person while they're singing? And sometimes I can't. So I just like, we'll look at the program and read, read the translations. But if I can look at the person, I know that they're comfortable. It's like, yeah. It's like a, a, a sense of whether or not somebody is there actually, you know. Whoa. So I felt like you were, uh, even from when you came on stage, and actually I felt that when you were, the first note you sang as Melisanda, that like you were just present, like, mm. you know. And it almost feels like you were, you know, off stage being present already so that when you were on stage, it was there. You know? <laughs> I love that. <laughs> if that's not something you thought of. or It, it depends on the show, you know, like that I think – you came to the last performance. Yes. Yeah, we had had like a eight or nine day break between shows. So we were all a little antsy. It had been a while since we had these characters in our bodies and in our voices. Um, so I think the last thing I did was I gave Zach a big hug. <laughs> yeah. oh, good. So Zachary Nelson singing Golo. He wasn't the originally announced cast. Uh, Susan Graham as Genevieve. What 
luxury flex casting. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Raymond Aceto as um, Arkel. Um, I have to say that Hugh Montag uh, Randall, uh, apparently he was in Chicago singing Papageno in the Kosky production of Magic Flute. I didn't, I didn't clock him. Mm. Um, so this, to me, felt like the first time I saw him. It's fabulous. I am in love. Yeah. <laughs> he showed up, you know, 10 days into the rehearsal process and, I mean, immediately changed the dynamic of, you know, just how much we were all bringing to the characters, ex- acting-wise, expressivity, but also the French. His French is immaculate. Hmm. It's amazing. Well, if you're hearing this now, there are still a few more um, Pelias and Melisans uh, to go f- before the season ends. Samantha, thank you so much for being our guest on Opera Box Score. Thank you for having me. So in that interview, you heard uh, Heidi Stober uh, with uh, Samantha Hanke uh, in the uh, opening duet from Hansel and Greta from Lyric Opera of Chicago. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the middle of that uh, interview, you heard a little bit of Lisa Davidson uh, singing uh, the Marshallin with Samantha Hanke from the recent production at uh, the Metropolitan Opera. And we heard a little bit of the final duet uh, from the production that Samantha had mentioned in the interview from Bayerische, from Bayerische Staatsoper. Uh, I said Bayreuth, but I meant Bayerische, uh, with, <laughs> with Katar, I have Bayreuth on the head with Katarina Conradi as, um, Sophie with the, uh, uh, conductor being Vladimir Jarovsky. So, um, before we hear the Susan Graham on, uh, Octavian interview, I just want to say that uh, and we're going to hear it in a second that one of my favorite parts of this opera, uh, like you had suggested, Matt, uh, it just comes like out of nowhere and is ends up being one of the most beautiful lines in the whole opera, which is after the Marshallin sings her aria about uh, stopping the clocks in the middle of the night. <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> like all 32 year olds. Yep. <laughs> uh, and. You know, Octavian was, you know, doing the whole Mariandel thing and he had been changing back into his boy clothes and he's in a good mood. He thought the prank went well uh, and, you know, he's probably still got, you know, a, a woody or some sponginess from earlier in the act. <laughs> oh, no. and, Careful. You know, and uh, he sees that, that the Marshallin suddenly after all of this is sad and he, you know, he's like, what's going on? Like. Everything is fine, right? And just somehow in that act, something changed for the Marshallin. And he perceives it only slightly because he's whatever, 15 years old or 18 years old. 
Um, but it is so, it is such a beautiful line that we're going to hear in a moment. Uh, and then what the Marshallin predicted would happen happens in the very next act. I wrote down a couple of little thoughts on this, just in, you know, sort of ideas on Marshall in general, but specifically like that, that moment. I mean, she is this glamorous princess who's reckoning with the passage of time at the ripe old age of 32. Kill me. Uh, <laughs> so the thing is, it's like she's she's dealing with her her own reckoning, but she also legitimately wants better for both Octavian and Sophie. Like she was Sophie at one point. She was this young, promising, like beauty who was begrudgingly giving herself and her youth up for these, you know, responsibilities. And she's afraid that that's exactly what's going to happen to Sophie. And so she doesn't want that for her. She's emotional. She's classy, but she's got this authority and she's scandalous. And one of the things that I really love about that entire sequence there's a there's a reason that the interlude happens right after ist doch der Lauf der Welt. It's well, it's the way of the world. Like she just in that moment resigns, and it's weird because it's so heartbreaking. But the music in that interlude is really beautiful, so it kind of messes with your head a little bit because she's really resigning herself to like I remember when I was this girl, and I'm not anymore, and. I am once again assuming responsibility, and then the music's like ba 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 ba, and kind of major. So, uh, so it's a it's a really beautiful moment where she's reckoning with her own sort of loss of of beauty, uh, which at the time was one of the most prized possessions that she had. So it's a it's a really special moment. And it definitely also shows how well she knows her main squeeze. That all he's mm-hmm. gonna have to do is go show up with a silver rose. With Persian adder inside of it, and it's gonna she fall head over heels. Pretty, pretty good, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you say that to all the girls. Literally, that's all they need to say. <laughs> because for very courteous, literally like courtly music, that duet is quite sexy times. Mm-hmm. Well, here is uh, our next guest, Susan Graham, from the commercial recording made with uh, Renee Fleming on her Strauss Heroines album of just that moment uh, that. Um, Octavian recognizes the Marshallin's melancholy. today on Opera Box Score, you'll never believe it, is Susan Graham. I don't know how I accomplished this, <laughs> but she's here at Santa Fe Opera. Uh, yesterday, she gave a performance of Jean Vieve in Pelleas de Melisande, and I'm recording an interview with her for WFMT, and we have just a couple minutes left, so I thought I would sneak her over to Opera Box Score, and we were just talking about Octavian, and, um, you know, I've been listening to your recordings and just thinking about how your voice has this brightness to it and this like very forward placement and it sounds like you're going to be like a lighter voice but then you get in the house and you sing Didon in uh, Les Troyens or you sing Octavian and that's a sound that cuts and uh, you know you are a favorite of like Michael Tilson Thomas and you're singing like Mahler leader you know so you've got to have some you know meat on the bones to to sing that type of music mm. but yet you manage to have this 
feminine, you know, uh, bright quality, which makes your instrument great for French music, but also clearly makes you an ideal Octavian because you always sound youthful when you sing Octavian. I think it's a question of, thank you very much for saying that. That's very kind. I, I think it's a question of clarity. And the timbre of my voice, as you say, was always very, was always rather bright. Um, but I think that there was, uh, or at least what I always strived for was a, a kind of resonant space behind that brightness. And, um, you know, I, I always think of it as a balance. It's yes, the vowels are in the front, but those resonating spaces in the back. So that nothing gets too muddy or swallowed or anything like that. I'm very much of the Italian mask school of singing, but never sacrificing a roundness in the sound too and i think maybe that's that's what you hear that is is the meat on the bones yeah. as you say do you have um somebody who travels with your managers or whatnot that would go into the house and say yeah that's great like you don't need to do any more than that you know because you seem to find a balance where you can do your colors and do your soft singing which is like top shelf soft singing <laughs> but yet you're still heard and i don't know like how you negotiate that in all these different spaces that you sing in you know it's it's more a question of feel i mean if if it's possible no i do not have people who travel with me to, to do sound <laughs> checks in every place i sing no that's a luxury i do not have however there's you know if i'm concerned about balance with an orchestra and a concert or something if i feel like the you know the orchestra might be a little loud then i can you know i can ask somebody to go out in the house usually there's an assistant conductor who's out there anyway on behalf of the conductor to to check for balance and things like that but for me and thank you for uh, acknowledging my soft singing i always called that my my party trick um <laughs> and it's it's difficult i have i teach the young singers now uh, from time to time and they always say how do you do that soft thing and it's very hard to put into words because for me it's a question of it's a question of breath and then this little pinpoint placement sort of in the top of my head it's a tiny it feels like a tiny tiny space but if you say that then somebody will choke down so it's it's just a it's a it's a balance of you know it's like uh juggling and chewing gum at the same time you know it's about it's multitasking i suppose so you are I mean, this is like getting nitty-gritty you're 5'10 mm -hmm. okay do you think that your height has anything to do with your ability to make louder noises but still have softer you know of, of, be able to go to that color and still have it carry i don't know i don't know if my height has anything to do with it but i do think that a person's physicality certainly informs their instrument mm -hmm. um you know, I've looked at my vocal cords on a laryngoscope quite a number of times, and you know, they they could be they could be soprano cords. They're they're not overly thick, voluminous. <laughs> yeah, you know, um, I if I saw a picture of Dolores Zajic's vocal cords next to mine, I'm sure they'd be very very different. <laughs> um, but I I I think you know I I always make the joke that my father was six foot three barrel chested and um was like a, a little league baseball coach so he could be at one end of the field and yell at the outfielders and they could be heard so i met, i feel like i got my resonance from him maybe and and my mother is very very musical um plays the piano by ear so i think i got my musical talent from her and my lung power from my dad maybe i don't know but i i i think that the ability to have all the colors in the paint box and soft being a very important one 
is is just sort of critical for for the way that I like to express music. And, and do you think maybe it's also kept you healthy, like vocally? Oh yeah, I I really do believe that I've always had a very healthy vocal technique, and I've always known what I should and what I should not sing. Well, that's clear. You mentioned before we started recording that you know I've never sung Carmen, I've never sung Melisande. Uh, I feel like Melisande would actually fit your voice well, or is this too low? No, it's not too low. It's uh. Yeah, I was asked to sing Melisande a lot because of my affinity with French music. But for me, the, her character was never right for me. You know, uh, Frederica von Stade was a perfect Melisande. She's ethereal and she's she has this naivety and this innocence. I mean, the character and sometimes Flicka too, obviously. Oh. But I was always much more uh, meat and potatoes. I mean, you know, give me a sword fight. <laughs> you know i just liked i liked much more dynamic characters let's say you know as you mentioned earlier about my didon you know i wanted to come out and be a boss and and melison doesn't get a lot of opportunity to do that yeah, um, she has to be dragged on by her hair yeah, yeah you know ow but and then the other end of the spectrum is carmen and that was not a temperament issue that was a vocal issue because I know how I want to hear a Carmen sound and I can't sound like that because I never had that smoke in the bottom of my voice that I want a Carmen to have, you know? So I, I felt like I was just, I was a little too uh, wonder bread for <laughs> to sing Carmen, you know, I'm shiny and silvery and Mozart and that didn't translate into the kind of Carmen that I would have wanted to be. You said that you've been singing here since 1989. Yeah. Um, are there experiences or roles that really like that was that was amazing? I wish I could do that every year, that role. Oh, gosh. Yes. <laughs> I did my first composer here. Mm -hmm. I did my first Dorabella here in Così Do you remember who the Fiorilegi was? Nova Thomas. Okay. Who's here teaching right now. I just spent nice. an hour with her. Uh, I did my first Carabino here with just, you know the uh, unknown, then unknown Welsh baritone Bryn Turfel <laughs> making his American debut and his role debut as Figaro. Him, yeah. <laughs> yeah. At 25 years old here at the Santa Fe Opera. Yeah. That was something. Um, and I, as it occurred to me today, I did my first Carabino with him and my last Carabino with him at the Met mm. with Bryn and lots in between. Um, but yeah, no, the Santa Fe Opera is, it's, I, I'm a native New Mexican. I, mm -hmm. I was a, born here and I lived in New Mexico till I was 12. And so the Santa Fe Opera was always my dream venue. So any yeah. tips for since you can't possibly teach all the mezzos, but maybe there are some <laughs> listening now. Any tips for being heard in a space like this in Santa Fe, which I think is scary, isn't it? Like when you're young to come out here, it's like, can people hear me? Like, you know, you mean because it's outdoors. Yeah. no. No, I never felt that. I mean, I probably should have, but I was <laughs> I was too busy being terrified to worry about that. Um, no, I, I I think for anybody anywhere. I mean, you you remember Kathleen Battle, mm -hmm. who did not have a huge voice, but it was a diamond, a pure perfect diamond, and she never pushed, and she never tried to be loud, but it was that focused resonance that made her audible in the 4,000 seat Metropolitan Opera and anywhere else that you want to think about. She was a diamond. And so that's what I think about. 
I think about the placement of forward placement of forward resonance with that space is always is is how anybody should be heard. And if all else fails, pucker. <laughs> especially in French, especially in the lower part of your voice. Yeah. I mean, un soir je l'ai trouvé. It's not my comfort zone, but I have to bring it forward in order to be heard. And we're talking about Genevieve and Pelias et Melisande, which you heard me sing last mm-hmm. night. Yes. Well, thank you so much for spending time with us on Opera Box Score. I'm so thrilled to meet you and to be able to talk about these little things that bother me about uh, how would you do this? Like, how how do you do this? Like, we were listening to <laughs> we were listening to Sharon Nui uh, and on WFMT just a minute ago, and it's like, how do you how do you do that? Do you sing that song anymore? Is that something you reprogram, or is that like no? A, yeah, but yeah, this soft singing, uh, the long phrases like in the Strauss, uh, you know. But, yeah. I programmed some Ronaldo Hahn a few years ago in a recital right before the pandemic. Mm-hmm. My last performance before everything mm-hmm. shut down was a recital at, in Berkeley. And uh, and I remember thinking, gosh, these Han songs used to be so easy. <laughs> and now they're really hard. Yeah. You know, I'm going to ask you one more question. Um, when you sing Strauss versus singing um, something like Mozart, um, where the phrases in Strauss are so long, is there something you have to do to like pace the phrase or something you do like about the way you breathe or do you just let the voice like not worry about blooming, just like launch it and just let it be. No, 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 no. It's very much about pacing for right. me because those phrases are very long. And and it's the same thing I teach when I teach Strauss. You don't want to land on a high note fortissimo. You want to land on it and then grow into fortissimo. You don't want to spend all your capital at the beginning of a phrase because you got to have somewhere to go because those Strauss phrases are long and they always go somewhere interesting. Yeah. So you got to decide where, what your priorities are and then put the bulk of your energy into that, into the climax of that phrase or whatever it is. Yeah. I mean, like with Mozart, like even though the phrases can be long, they're always moving. So you know that the phrase is coming to an end. But yeah. with Strauss, like, good luck. <laughs> right, right. And, you know, Strauss really tapped into my my innate musicality and my my just my joy of of sinking into an orchestra and feeling that that embrace of all that sound and being part of that that's the perfect thing to have said because i think that's one of the qualities that you bring is that it sounds like you are listening to the orchestra oh it's a conversation yeah always and and with malcolm in the in piano when he's playing with me in a recital it is a tennis match and we always um Every single time we've performed together live, we come off stage and I go, well, that was interesting what you did in that one phrase. He goes, well, it was interesting how you answered it, too, <laughs> you know, because we give each other ideas and, and we know each other so well that it's a spontaneous kind of relationship. And and even on the recital platform, it's it's like he he served me a volley and I returned it. Is this something that you're able to teach to the level of artists you're working with right now? Or is it something they don't? have yet the brain space yet to work on it depends on it depends on their level of experience and because you know that as we were talking earlier that's um experience is the greatest greatest teacher there are a lot of things that at this point in my career after having done this for you know 35 years now i take for granted artistic choices expressive choices vocal choices 
that to me, it seems like, well, that's a no brainer. But if I present it to a young singer who hasn't had that exposure or hasn't had that experience or hasn't had that thought in their head, they're not going to think of it on their own until they've been doing it for 35 years. Yeah, I think the young singer is still like figuring out their technique and remembering what they're singing about. And like that's already taking it's up already a lot of a bandwidth. Lot. Yeah. It's a lot. And, you know, a lot of the, the <clears throat> young artists and young artist programs around the country, these are young singers who might be just out of graduate school. And as we all know, in academia, you're told so often that everything you're doing is wrong and you got to do it differently. And so they're still have a little bit of PTSD from coming out of academia and they're afraid that they're going to be criticized. So they're so careful that they haven't found their voice yet. They haven't found their courage or their expressive avenues because they, they haven't been allowed to. This is a business that sort of relies on people's insecurity so that there could be all these people telling you what to do, but there's not enough people giving singers trust in themselves to make decisions and to think about things artistically. It's like, right. I, um, what are my coaches? I remember talking to a singer and asking her if she would sing such and such piece. She's like, I don't know if I can sing that to ask my coach first, if I can sing it. So, okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, and, and at the beginning, uh, that's how it is. That's how we learn. Yeah. You learn by making mistakes and you learn by, asking people whom you trust. I mean, when I was young, I had the best voice teacher, the best manager, the best publicist, all the best people. I fully believe that. And I, because one of the hallmarks of a smart, successful person is that you surround yourself with the best people you can find and you rely on them. And I was never afraid to ask for advice or, you know, life lessons because this, it's a, it's a, it can be a minefield. But it's fun. My thanks to the PR team at Santa Fe Opera, especially the lovely Grant Carr for uh, coordinating the interview and preparing a space for me to hold it. This time I didn't have to uh, do it over Zoom. Those were in person, which I think is <laughs> so much easier uh, for them to see how sincere I am. And I literally broke down in tears when I was uh, recording with Susan Graham because we listened to one of her uh, melody uh, albums and it's one of my favorites. So anyway. You get to hear that if you listen to me on my other platform. Two great interviews. Great things come in twos. And I think if you've listened to the show for a while, you know where I'm going with this. It's the two-minute drill. This just in the two-minute drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know about what happened in Opera Land this week. David Daniels and his husband Scott Waters pled guilty to sexual assault in a Houston courtroom, part of a plea deal that will allow them to avoid incarceration. 
Daniels faces eight years of probation and is required to register as a sex offender. Anna Netrebko is suing the Met and Peter Gelb for $360,000, months after winning $200,000 from the company in arbitration over lost wages. Netrebko says that the Met caused her, quote, severe mental anguish and emotional distress, including depression, humiliation, embarrassment, stress and anxiety, and emotional pain and suffering. Said the Met in a statement, quote, Ms. Netrebko's lawsuit has no merit. Even babies agree, opera is always better <laughs> live. Researchers at the University of Toronto recently completed a study of infants listening to an opera made for children, both live and pre-recorded. The infants were 18% more attentive to live performance over recordings. The babies that watched live were observed having their heart rates sync up as they listened. If there's something happening that we collectively are engaging with, we're also connecting with each other, said the study's co-author Laura Sorelli. It speaks to the shared experience. Crunching the numbers, Liceu's books are balanced. The Grand Teatro de Liceu has announced that their 2022-23 season had a balanced 51 million euro budget, up 9.4% excuse me, from the previous season. 7.9 million euros came from patrons. Audiences, ticket sales, and subscribers were all up from the previous year, and 30 shows were sold out completely. <laughs> what, like it's hard? On the disabled list, California's Festival Opera has announced that Nicola Prince will be stepping into the title role in Carmen, filling in for Taylor Raven, who is withdrawing due to illness. And Freddie DiTomaso's fans in New Mexico will have to wait for one more cycle of operas before the British-Italian tenor makes his American debut as Cavaradossi at Santa Fe Opera, with drawing due to illness. Tenor Jonathan Burton sang on August 7th with the Tommaso expected to return this weekend. Exit stage right, Oscar-winning film director William Friedkin has died at age 87. His film credits include The French Connection, The Exorcist, and Rules of Engagement. Outside of his work in film, he was an opera director who directed Zalame at the Bayerische Staatsoper, Tales of Hoffman at the Theater an der Wien, and Il Tabarro at LA Opera. His final film, The Kane Mutiny Court Martial, will have its world premiere at the 2023 Venice Film Festival. And on this day, August 7th, first performances include Antonio Draghi's Il Delizioso Ritiro di Lucolo in Vienna in Everyone's 1698. <laughs> exactly. Antonio Salieri's Il Moro in Vienna in 1796. Franz von Suppe's Das Mädchen vom Lande in Vienna in 1847. And Jean Francais' Paris à nous deux in Fontainebleau in 1954. Birthdays include Romanian composer George Enescu in 1881, English soprano Margaret Ritchie in 1903, Finnish bass and composer Kim Borg in 1919, and on this day, August 7th, in 1946, it was the birth of American soprano Gail Robinson. And that was your two-minute drill.
just heard Finnish bass Kim Borg in Sorastro's Aria Oasis und Osiris from the Magic Flute. Uh, and if you are looking to listen to singers from history who you maybe have heard names of but haven't heard them before, you really could do a lot worse than to check out anything that was published um, by this Lebendige Vergangenheit label that uh, tends to cl- clean up the sound pretty well so that you can actually hear what's going on there, even with older recording <laughs> qualities. There's a decent amount collection of them uh, where it's like the only recording for a given singer, and I do recommend checking them out. I think that uh, I-, I didn't know that William Friedkin directed any operas but uh, you know i i feel like it's interesting that the exorcist did zalame and tales of hoffman but apparently not uh the devils of ludon by pendereski so like you know that was a missed opportunity <laughs> but speaking of uh horror films devils. and devils and uh, disturbing things Let's get into it. I think this is the big story this week uh, with David Daniels uh, and the plea deal. Uh, you know, it had been so long since I heard the last sort of update on this case. I, I'd almost forgotten about it. You know, it was just kind of nice. You know, the last time I feel like we talked about David Daniels, we were still, you know, it was pre-pandemic. We were all together in a college radio station pirating our little little show together. And now here we are several years later, and the next big step has occurred. It sure has. And now we're going to turn it over to our resident in-house legal correspondent, Ashley Hargrave. Uh, I'm not a <laughs> lawyer, but I work for lots of them. So uh, the thing is, the so the pleading that was done here by both David and his husband – it started out a little bit shadier. He initially tried to plead no contest, and the judge said no, Texas style. He was like, that doesn't happen in my courtroom. It's guilty or not guilty. And here's what's shady about that. So when you plead no contest, it's really an admission of guilt without saying it. So like, mm. I can't prove I didn't do this. You're going to have a ton of evidence that says I did this, but I don't want to say yes, I did this. So that's where people initially try to plead. It's uh like no low contendere, basically, or no contest. Yeah. Um, the thing is, the state of Texas has like a lot of restrictions around no contest, please. So even though, first of all, he got bad legal advice. If he thought he was going to plead no contest in a case like this in the state of Texas, like it just wasn't going to happen. So the judge was like, absolutely not. That's not going to happen. So this is where we are. So the case is now going to be moved to Georgia, where the couple now lives. They no longer live in Houston. So the sentencing that comes out of this this plea, you know, the official sentencing will happen during the, um, sorry, it'll happen in the state of Georgia. I mean, but the mm. thing is, like his career even though you would think it would be over just from the accusations and the allegations. Now that he's going to have to register as a defender for the rest of his life, it prevents him from being in any place basically that has youth programs, which is, I don't know, every opera company and every university has some sort of an outreach program. So in terms of him being able to legally work, uh, it's going to be really, really hard for him to do that, considering that most places have youth outreach programs. And I just want to take a moment to, you know, as much as the story is about him and and the plead, let's talk about the justice that it brings for his victim, Sam Schultz, who gave a victim impact statement that happened right after the plea. He's, uh, you know, he's not said a lot, but he's basically said, I'm glad that they're they're owning up to this in whatever way they can. So I just wanted to to make sure that he gets recognized for this because he's the one that endured mm-hmm. it. And frankly, he's the one that kicked all this off. He is the reason that David Daniel's career mm-hmm. is over, rightfully so. Absolutely. Yeah, it's it's one of those uh, stories that, you know, 
when it, I remember when it first broke, it was such a, you know, uh, such a huge, like, you know, crack in the uh, facade of, you know, the culture of silence around these sorts of things in the industry and, you know. The untouchability, yeah. Exactly, exactly. And I feel like David Daniels was, like, right in, like, that that sweet spot where he was big enough so that, like, you know, the fall was a big deal, but it wasn't so big that, you know, he couldn't really, like, you know, like a Placido Domingo, for example. He, could, he couldn't really hide behind it and just have a career in Europe. Um, but uh, so, like, it was... Uh, yeah, this is this is one of those huge stories that you know, uh, you know, it, it feels like the conclusion to just a, a really horrific series of events. We'll see um, if there are any more developments um, going on. But yeah, his career is over, and it should be over. Meanwhile, we're talking about legal stuff. <laughs> In not to, equally not to get... important attempts at accountability. <laughs> oh, oh, let's God. get let's get um, <laughs> let's get uh, uh, another Ashley rant back to back about Anna Netrebko. <laughs> I'm sure you've got one for me. I prefer to think well, of them as off. Ashley sermons. Oh yeah, that's better, I yeah. listen. You know, we're gonna. There's a reason I didn't go to law school or divinity school, but you're reaping the benefits of the amateur attempts right here. Uh, so, <laughs> you know, fresh off her two hundred thousand smackers from arbitration, she's going after them for almost double that. Uh, so she's suing them, but she's specifically suing Peter Galb. She's got that whole list of things there. My, could it be uh, personal? Okay, listen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, could it be personal? Maybe. Does she have a case? Maybe. Uh, depends on, honestly, it depends on what comes up in Discovery. It depends on how her legal team presents it. It also is going to depend on the judge, quite honestly. Right. Uh, so it's it's really going to come down to those factors. Now, I am doing my best to keep my personal feelings out of whether or not she should uh, be victorious in this case. But I, I did want to mention, you know, she, she did say that she had to sell her apartment at a loss after not <laughs> speaking out against Russia. And my only thought was at least you have an apartment to sell that wasn't bombed but i digress mm-hmm. uh so anyway we will uh we will see how this develops we'll see what the manhattan district courts say um we'll see if they decide to even take the case and not settle it out of court but i honestly don't think peter is going to settle this if the good wife has taught me one thing it's that illinois is a two-party consent state but if it's taught me a second thing it is that <laughs> defamation that has an absolute defense against it which is the truth <laughs> so yeah yeah, this is this is this is one of those things that like, you know, I, she did technically disavow it at some point, sort of. But at the same time, you know, it, th- this is definitely a case where I, f- I feel like the law and morality might not match up very well. And uh, this would be another financial hit on the Met. Like that's not an it's not an insignificant amount of money she's uh, asking for immediately after getting 200,000 from them. So, you know, we'll see what happens. Uh, All right. Well, I think we've had our good, our bad calls, but let's see if there's some good ones as we wrap this show up. (laughs) Good call. Bad call on Opera Box Score. Good call, bad call. It's how we end this show. I know I joked about bad calls earlier, but if you've got a bad call, I I don't mind. You know, I'm not George. I'm not going to be demanding. I'm I'm here for (laughs) everyone's voice to be included. Oliver Camacho, what have you got for me? Uh, I just want to shout out to two friends of the show who gave baller performances at a Ravinia Festival over the weekend. Um, Katie Lewick, 
reprising the role of uh, Queen of the Night. Of course, she was amazing. Uh, this is no surprise. And if you follow me on uh, Instagram, you'll see uh, that I taped the bows and I made a little reel. I'm so bad at it. Somebody teach me, please. <laughs> but I also gave sort of like my review of her performance and how detailed it was. So you can find that there. I didn't have enough space because Instagram is not like Facebook to talk about how incredible Janai Brugger was as Pamina. Mm. Uh, this production of Magic Flute uh, was very, very like it went through the sauna or went to the spa and like came out like very lightweight. Like it was short on dialogue. Tempos were really brisk. And Marin Alsop wasn't didn't come to play. She was getting everybody outdoor like within two hours and 30 minutes from 730. So uh, we were already. She didn't like, want a Rosen Cavalier on her hands. <laughs> yes. So that meant that the transitions were necessarily fast and uh yeah, Janai was unflappable. I mean, she went from coming on stage and maybe saying two lines of dialogue to launching into uh, Akishfruits and did it with so much poise and so much, you know, accurate, uh, in-tune singing and beautiful, her, her trademark, beautiful tone. So I just wanted to put that out there that uh, Janai has got some skills. The one thing I'll say is that I, I think this is a pairing to continue to pay attention to. Not Lewick and Brugger, Brugger and Alsop. Uh, they they work so well together, and Marin seems to bring the best out of Junai Brugger's musicianship. So I think we're going to see more of those pairings in the future. So let's watch it. Nice. Matt Cummings. I want to offer congratulations to another friend of our show, Jonathan McCullough, who uh, on his new endeavor, Fourth Wall Ensemble, which is a 12-person vocal group based in New York. Uh, but what's really amazing about this is beyond their commitment to the transformative power of storytelling through sound and music is their commitment to taking care of their artists by offering fair pay fair pay above the industry standard providing childcare for rehearsals and performances and and a healthcare stipend like for contracting work that's unbelievable uh and taking care of the artists will really allow great art to take place and open up the doors for who is able to participate in a group like this uh, and if there are any billionaires listening who want to do the same for Opera Box Score, we won't complain. <laughs> Ashley Hardgrave. Well, they both had really substantial things to talk about. Mine is going to uh, be a little more on the lighthearted side. Uh, over the end of July, uh, there was some footage that came out of an orchestra in Turkey. According to a Twitter, are we calling it X? According to whatever that app is now we called. We are not uh, calling it the, X. <laughs> the account, places where cats shouldn't be. Uh, a cat just decided to take up residency all across the orchestral stage during this Turkish orchestra's tune-up. Uh, he goes from literally section to section and, and evades people that are trying to catch him and eventually he ends up on the conductor's podium who takes it all in stride and, and just lets the cat just run around while they're doing uh, while they're doing their tune-up. It's fantastic. I thought you were going to say let the cat conduct, which is what I would be yelling from the audience. Next time. Like, like Tom Next and time. Tom and Jerry. So. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, I have a good call. Um, this is uh, a, from Classic FM. I think this actually uh, went viral a little bit before them because Classic FM is a little uh, behind the curve sometimes, but it's still a lot of fun. There's a video going around right now of the Truck Festival in Oxfordshire. Um uh, it, I'm surprised they didn't call it the Lori Festival, but um, tish. Uh, so this is uh, basically this is a uh, a music festival that's you know mostly pop music, rock music, um, but they also got the Oxford Symphony Orchestra, 
And so a lot of the audience was treated to, you know, some some John Williams, some uh, uh, and then a, the Rossini William Tell overture, which I think is the one that uh, there's is, the opera. There's the opera right there. We found it. And uh, it is delightful because the symphony starts playing um, Rossini and everyone <laughs> forms a mosh pit and starts headbanging and going all over the place. And honestly, it's the correct way to listen to that overture. That's how I listen to it here at home in my tiny closet. That's it for this week's edition of America's Talk Radio Show about opera. Make sure you subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Send us a voice memo or email us your hot takes at operaboxscore at gmail.com. Find links to stuff we've talked about at our website, operaboxscore.com. And that's also where you can put your money where our mouths are. Give back to the OBS on our donate page, especially if you're one of those billionaires that Matt mentioned earlier. Your announcer is Norm Waddell. Your creative consultant is Oliver Camacho. And I edit the audio. For co-hosts Matt Cummings and Ashley Hardgrave with guests Samantha Hankey and Susan Graham, I'm Weston Williams asking you to continue the conversation about opera as your heart rate syncs up with your fellow nursery mates. We're back with an all new show next week. Plus you get more opera headlines, more hot takes and more depression, humiliation and embarrassment. Join us.